Coming up on this episode of Here's an Idea. At the age of 11, my brother and I built a telescope. What kinds of innovations in space robotics are impressing you right now? The Perseverance rover is going to have a helicopter on board. Welcome to a special edition of our Here's an Idea podcast series. I'm Billy Hurley with TechBriefs.com. For our next six episodes, we're going to explore the stories behind some of the most interesting technologies in space and aerospace. Today on Here's an Idea, we have a special guest. He is a planetary scientist and fellow at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and he is the project leader for a super instrument that is designed to search for clues of life on Mars. Roger Weens, welcome. Thank you, Billy. So, Roger, let's start with the technology itself. Uh, I said that the instrument was super, so I'm referring to the SuperCam. What is the SuperCam? SuperCam is a multi-technique, or you could almost say multi-talented instrument that sits on the top of the Perseverance rover that is going to Mars this summer. And uh, so SuperCam has several different techniques in one small package. And that's why we think it's super. And it really provides both chemistry, mineralogy, uh, visual images, and rock properties, physical properties of the rock, all in one package. And it does this remotely by uh, looking out at targets up to uh, 25 feet away from the rover or even way out to infinity. And you said looking at targets. Can you give me a sense of what those targets are? Yeah, so anything around the rover, really, it could be rocks or soils. If we're coming up on an outcrop of rocks, that is a ledge or where there are different types of layers of rocks, we can characterize all of those. We're really trying to understand what these rocks are telling us about the past environment on Mars. And why is it so important to study these rocks? Why is the SuperCam and what it's finding so important? What we understand on Mars comes from the record that the rocks tell us. They really hold the clues to understanding what Mars was like in the past. And what we found up till now has been absolutely fascinating, that Mars was a very different environment in the past, and uh, one that uh, to us would seem very habitable with lakes, rivers, and streams, uh, an atmosphere, and so on. Can you provide us with a kind of Mars 2020 timeline when the SuperCam will launch, when it'll arrive, and when it'll start collecting data? Yeah, the Perseverance rover was, in fact, it just got its name this last week, and it is at Florida at Kennedy Space Center. It is going through final preparations before it gets stacked up onto the rocket and is preparing for a July launch this summer. It takes about eight and a half months to get to Mars. Uh, We do that during the close approach between Earth and Mars whenever possible, which happens every two and a third years. And so that close approach is in early October. Uh, That is the midpoint of the cruise to Mars, and then uh, it gets to Mars on February 18 
in 2021. So that'll be the landing day, and we'll uh, start really checking out the rover right after that and starting to get the instruments in a form where they can start collecting data as soon as possible after that. I watched the press conference last week where they named the rover. How do you feel about uh, the name Perseverance? Oh, I love the name Perseverance. It uh, speaks so well to the teams of people that have to uh, work uh, many years and uh, many long nights often to build this, uh, this rover and all of its instruments. It also speaks to the rover itself. We hope that the rover itself does persevere for a long time on Mars. Uh, we've been very fortunate with the recent uh, rovers and so on that, that have been sent to Mars, both rovers and landers. And, uh, you know, it speaks to us as humans, as our human quality. I mean, perseverance is spoken about in the Bible. It's spoken about in all of our sort of human uh, uh, performance uh, books that we have. And uh, it is just one of the most important human qualities that we have. So in all three of those respects, I love the word. And it was interesting to me to watch the reaction in the auditorium when they were naming the rover. There seemed to be a, a true energy and excitement. Can you speak to, to that? And if and I, I think about the, on the landing day, is there a real kind of excitement in the air leading up to these, these big events on the timeline? Oh, yes. Let me, let me address both of those. Yeah, first of all, I, I watched the naming event for this rover, and it was so exciting. Uh, in case you don't know, it is uh, all a contest with students, and it's students different ages. They all have to write an essay to explain why they are proposing the name they proposed, and uh, then uh, it just really gets exciting to see these kids as well as the adults, as excited as they are about the whole event, the, the naming, the qualities of the rover itself that they are describing, and in the whole mission. And when you get to the landing uh, on Mars, there is nothing more exciting and uh, sort of nail-biting as well. Uh, personally, I've actually been through a, uh, a landing failure uh, sometime in NASA's past, and I can tell you that uh, it's not necessarily an assured uh, successful event, but uh, we do think we have very good odds these days for landing on Mars safely. And let's maybe go into the design of, of the SuperCam. How did you begin... You're, you, you are a fellow at Los Alamos National Laboratory. How did you then begin uh, working with the SuperCam? So the story goes back a while. Uh, we had designed an instrument called ChemCam, and that instrument is now operating on the Curiosity rover. It's been there for over seven years, and uh, we have made over 700,000 uh, laser uh, spectra with that instrument. So it's been uh, hugely successful. We've made a lot of discoveries. And uh, the time frame for starting SuperCam was just after the landing of ChemCam and the Curiosity rover. And NASA announced that there would be a new rover that would go to Mars. The science definition team defined that this rover would uh, collect samples that we want to bring back to Earth, but uh, everything has to be more advanced on this rover. And so we started thinking to ourselves, what would we do to uh, improve on what we were already doing? Uh, the definition team actually specified that the remote sensing instrument on this Perseverance rover would have to study mineralogy. ChemCam -chem studies chemistry. And so we had a bit of a conundrum. 
uh, we decided that we would actually add two, not one, but two t uh, techniques that would cover mineralogy with this instrument. And we would add that to what ChemCam does already. And uh, it was really a, uh, a brave step because we thought, well, we're really proposing too much. NASA's not going to believe that we can actually pull this off. Uh, but we did put this proposal in with all of those things in it. And uh, lo and behold, NASA selected it and they loved it. So uh, that was the uh, sort of the backstory for this instrument. And so from a design perspective, what are your biggest challenges? Uh, we did have a lot of uh, consideration to try to make sure that for all of these four techniques, so one chemistry, two mineralogy, and uh, then a, an imager, a camera, to give us the context, all four of these techniques are not compromised by the other techniques that we have on board. And that's a challenge. And so we really worked really hard to make sure that each technique is doing its very best in this context. And I can say that we came up with a pretty darn good instrument. To maybe help our audience kind of visualize this technology, can you kind of take us through what the, a task that the rover can accomplish and the, and the specific technologies it's going to use to accomplish that task? Sure, Billy. Uh, let me start with uh, SuperCam, since we've been talking about that. And so as this rover would drive up to a, an outcrop, a, a cliff or a, a bunch of rocks, uh, we would use SuperCam first to get some of the long-distance imaging. We would also use the mast cam, which gives us larger uh, field of view images to characterize these rocks. And the thing that SuperCam can do at the longest distance besides those images is the visible and infrared uh, reflectance spectroscopy. And that is a way to study the mineralogy uh, at a long distance by looking at the, uh, the, the, uh, the reflected sunlight off of these rocks in the infrared range and uh, somewhat in the visible range. And that tells us some things about the mineralogy. Then as the rover drives closer, we would want to study it with the laser. We can start doing that at about 25 feet away, maybe a little bit farther. And uh, so we have the two techniques that use the laser. Uh, the LIBS is uh, carried over from ChemCam. LIBS stands for Laser Induced Breakdown Spectroscopy. And what we do is we focus a laser pulse or a series of laser pulses onto the rock target and uh, it, it's uh, providing more than 10 megawatts instantaneously per square millimeter. And so it ablates a small amount of material and the, that material is very hot and it actually is emitting light uh, as it, uh, as it uh, flies off of the uh, rock. And uh, so we look at the color spectrum of that, uh, of those uh, photons and we get the atomic uh, emission or the atomic makeup of that material. That gives us the chemistry, and we can calibrate that. Uh, we also would look at it with Raman spectroscopy, which is uh, a, uh, a less focused laser beam that then gives us uh, a, a little bit of the interaction of the molecules at the surface. That is effectively another mineral technique, and it's actually complementary with the VIS-IR, the visible and infrared spectroscopy. They look at different kinds of molecular vibrations overall. And so they're, they're very nice to have together. This is the first time on any mission that we've had them together. Uh, in fact, the first time on any landed Mars mission we've had either of them. 
And then uh, we can also record the sound of the Libs uh, ablation plasmas, and uh, it makes uh, a little shock wave, and that produces a tick or a sparking sound. The uh, change of that sound as we profile into a rock with uh, successive laser shots gives us uh, some information on the hardness of that rock. So we can get both the chemistry and mineralogy, but also the rock hardness without ever driving up and touching or even being very close to these rocks. That gives us a real good information about whether we want to sample the, the outcrop with the arm instruments. Those are Pixel and Sherlock. Pixel gives us microscopic scale information on the chemistry of the rock and Sherlock gives us microscopic information on the possibility of organic molecules there and some uh, other information about mineralogy. So that really helps us to uh, quantitatively characterize rocks uh, both at a far distance and then close up as we uh, move in with the arm. And then finally, if we decide that we want to, we can grab a sample of that rock and that is done by using a drill, and it is a coring drill. Uh, and so as soon as it drills the hole, it is actually encapsulating a core from that drill with uh, a metal tube. And so we, uh, we house the sample in a metal tube, we hold it within the rover, and then at some time during the mission, those samples will get dropped on the ground for future, to be picked up in the future and returned to Earth. So would it be fair to call this instrument kind of a, a rock vaporizer? It vaporizes only a small bit of rock in a little pit, so it's uh, basically nanograms at a time with each laser pulse. But uh, yeah, you can call it a vaporizer if you wish. So how do you test something like that? How do we test a supercam in order to get it ready for flight? Um, well, uh, actually, if I start at the beginning, one of the first tests that we did was to check the timing between the laser and our detectors. Our new technique, Raman spectroscopy, uh, works on a very fast time scale. We use uh, the pulsed laser to excite Raman spectroscopy. That's different from most laboratory Raman instruments. And because we're doing this at a distance, we have to get rid of all the background, all the background light. And so we do that by using a very rapid shutter on our camera. And so we're only exposing or collecting the light around the time that we fire that, that very fast laser beam. It's a neodymium YAG laser. And so we only have four nanoseconds that the laser is active. And so we have a, a nanosecond scale shutter on our detector that closes right after the light comes in from that. Uh, and it turns out that half of our instrument is French, it's built in France, it is uh, sponsored by the French Space Agency, and half the instrument is US, uh, sponsored by NASA and built at Los Alamos National Laboratory. We had to get those two halves of the instrument together to make sure the timing was right. And so we did that as early as early 2016 to make sure that we were on track with the, the laser and uh, the detector to make sure that they were gonna talk to each other, so to speak. Once that was uh, confirmed, then we started doing other kinds of tests, building up more parts of the instrument, ultimately doing all of the major environmental tests that we have to do when we build uh, an instrument for space. And we, we often talk about that as shake and bake. That is, we vibrate the instrument uh, as it would experience during a launch, 
and we, in this case, don't really bake it, but we, we send it to very cold temperatures as it might experience on Mars. And so those are some of the major tests. Additionally, a lot of the parts have to, uh, of course, pass tests for radiation, but we usually do that at the electronic instrument part level. What are you most excited to learn from this mission? This is, uh, of course, uh, one in a series of missions to Mars, and we've been so fortunate that NASA has has really focused on Mars over the last 20 years with uh, three different generations of rovers so far, and this would be the fourth. But this will be the first one to return samples to Earth, or at least to be a part of that return. It will take more missions to get the samples back. So that's going to be an extremely exciting long-term aspect of this mission. But in the short term, when we get this rover, Perseverance, to Mars, I'm really excited to see this new landing site. There is chemistry that we think we know about this landing site from orbit, from uh, the instruments on some orbital uh, satellites on Mars, that are telling us that this site is rich in carbonates. Now, the Earth is really rich in carbonates in the form of limestone, uh, all over the place. Many of Earth's sedimentary rocks are limestone. We don't understand why Mars, with a carbon dioxide atmosphere, does not have more carbonate rocks. But it seems that this Jezero Crater site, where Mars 2020 is going to land, has plentiful carbonates. So this is an enigma to us, and we really want to understand that. So that's one aspect, and then we really do want to look for organic materials and try to understand what is the abundance or concentration of organic materials on Mars. That's an, extreme, uh, an extremely interesting question for all of us. Have you always had a kind of enthusiasm or fascination with space? I have. Uh, it turns out, and in fact, I wrote about this in my book, uh, Red Rover, but uh, at the age of 11, my brother and I built a telescope. Um, we uh, actually mounted it on a fence post because our little uh, our paper out uh, money as kids didn't go far enough to, to, uh, for us to buy the mount right away. But we, we got it onto this uh, fence post in time for the close approach of Mars when I was 11 years old, and we started to sketch uh, the features of Mars that we could see through this telescope. And... Uh, and it's just gone from there. So what kinds of advice would you give aspiring engineers? Were there any kind of lessons that you learned in the process of creating these cameras that, that you could share with aspiring engineers? Be creative. Uh, I love the idea that, you know, we are uh, engineers, we are scientists, and so we've, we have learned to think uh, about things in a very analytical way. But we cannot let that get in the way of being creative because it's the creative spark in us that comes up with the new instruments that uh, thinks outside of the box to try to figure out, can we do something, maybe that not that was asked of us, but that we know is going to be better in the end. And so I, I, I just love to encourage people to be both left and right brained. And uh, I think th by using all of our brains, we end up uh, with, with uh, the most interesting things. So speaking of out-of-the-box technologies, what kinds of innovations in space robotics are impressing you right now? Oh, I love it that the Perseverance rover is actually going to have a helicopter on board. This uh, helicopter is really a tech demo. It was built by uh, a, a skunk works at, at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, 
and uh, I think that's really going to capture our imagination. The Mars atmosphere is very thin. It is only 1% as thick as that on Earth, and so conventional wisdom would say, well, you know, a helicopter's out on Mars. But this group uh, didn't, didn't take that for an answer, and they went ahead and, des- and developed this helicopter that we believe is going to work on Mars. I'm, I'm extremely excited about that because having a helicopter on Mars, seeing that even just a little tech demo can work, can open up new vistas for us. Uh, and uh, I'll just uh, go off on a little side uh, story here, but Mars actually has uh, caves and if we want to understand if life was uh, existing on Mars or if it, was, if it might even still exist, a cave would be a place to be because it is protected from the radiation of space and, it, uh, and from the, the temperature extremes on the, on the surface. But you can't really get into a cave very easily on Mars. Most of them have uh, extreme vertical drops because they are lava tubes with a hole in the ceiling somewhere. And so you have uh, drops of, of many, many, many feet to the floor that's probably a rocky floor, very uneven. And so uh, I, I'm just, uh, the next thought that I've got on my mind is to uh, take a Mars helicopter and go into a Mars cave. And we've actually been designing an instrument here at Los Alamos that would be perfect for that kind of mission, looking for organic materials inside a Mars cave. So anyway, you know, you can take uh, your imagination and let it run wild, but there's some really exciting things that we're doing, and this Mars 2020 mission is going to show, uh, for example, the, that uh, a helicopter can work on Mars. When do you think there will be human habitation on Mars? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I never know quite what to think, but... Uh, Clearly, these robotic missions are bringing us in that direction, and uh, it's, uh, it's a lot bigger deal, of course, to get the, the large kinds of spacecraft that you would need to get people to Mars and back. And, uh, and the last part of that sentence is actually the most important because we don't want to just send people there and leave them. Uh, Mars is the first place that we are thinking about going that actually has a large gravity field. We've been to the moon, but it has only one-sixth the gravity of Earth, and getting back to Earth was not that difficult. But going to Mars and coming back is the coming back part, the getting off the surface of Mars is much, much more difficult because it's a planet, and it has a a third, more than a third, almost four-tenths of the gravity that Earth has. And so when you think about getting humans back, you have to have a large rocket on the surface of Mars that could launch people off into orbit. And uh, then it would probably take an, an additional mission where the people could rendezvous with another uh, mission coming from Earth in low Mars orbit to get them back. It's just the, the energetics of that is, is a challenge. But it's a goal we're going to keep on working towards, I believe, and uh, maybe in uh, several decades we'll get there. Roger, how would you describe your kind of day-to-day work? How would you describe your job? I do a lot of different things. Uh, Part of it is leading the technical team, uh, which is still very involved in testing some of the parts of our instrument, uh, not on the rover necessarily so much anymore, but uh, back home here just to make sure that there is nothing uh, amiss or that we really understand how to operate it, Uh, doing uh, testing of samples so that we understand what is the best way to address those samples with, uh, with the instrument. And then um, we're getting our whole scientific and operations team ready as well 
to uh, start working uh, in uh, less than a year from now on the surface of Mars with the rover. So uh, there's a lot of logistics to that. There are uh, a lot of training to get used to. There is a building of software that has to happen so that we can uh, basically get the data back in a way that we can understand it rapidly uh, and that we can send up commands easily so that we uh, can command this complicated instrument well as well. Uh, and then there's, uh, of course, things like this, talking with the public, and I love that aspect as well. So those are those are all parts, and then not to mention or not to forget, but uh, you know we we still want to think towards the future as well, thinking about new instruments that we could design that would even go beyond this. How did you get started in space exploration? Beyond the uh, the telescopes that you were making in in as growing up as a kid. Yeah, so I've I've majored in physics, uh, and it turns out that uh, I actually had the opportunity in graduate school to study pieces of Mars, which I. Uh, I didn't really expect, but it, it, uh, at just at the time, we started to realize that there are meteorites, uh, these, uh, these shooting stars, as we sometimes call them, that uh, have actually come to Earth from Mars. We don't know what part of Mars it came from, but we actually do have those on Earth. And I got to, s to study some of those as, as part of my PhD thesis. That, of course, got me interested. I never really thought I would go farther with uh, space exploration. That was really not my intention. But uh, somehow, providentially, I ended up uh, losing one job just at a time when I could grab a job at Caltech that was uh, focused completely on a space mission. Uh, and that just got me started. So um, it, was a, it was a very interesting turn of events. Um, and uh, so I've been on a mission called Genesis, and that was a mission to study the, the uh, beginnings of our solar system. And then from there, I got onto the Curiosity rover with the ChemCam instrument uh, by uh, ha seeing a colleague who was studying this uh, laser technique here at Los Alamos and uh, being able to uh, successfully pitch that to NASA as a really good technique for using in space. So um, that was, uh, th that brought me to this decade. And feel free to go into as much or as little detail as you'd like about this, but I was curious when you mentioned in the beginning that you were part of a, a team where you saw a, a failed landing, was, uh, do you want to kind of take us through that and what happened that day? Yeah, I wrote, wrote about that in my book, Red Rover, but uh, this mission called Genesis, it was the first sample return mission to come back to Earth after Apollo. It was the first robotic sample return mission by NASA to come back to Earth. And it was a mission that went out into space a million miles from Earth, collected solar wind, which is uh, particles streaming from the sun, and it was uh, bringing them back to Earth in order to study the sun's composition. Uh, the capsule had a, a parachute. That parachute was going to be deployed uh, by some sensors that could sense when the capsule was re-entering the Earth's atmosphere by the, the, the negative Gs that it was being decelerated by. Uh, we watched that uh, capsule uh, uh, falling uh, from space down to Earth for a full five minutes, and that parachute never deployed, and it hit the ground at 290 miles an hour, and uh, we had a lot of uh, broken pieces um, and, and a crowd of, uh, of, of reporters around asking what happened and what, was gonna, what we were going to do next. 
Uh, everyone thought it was a big failure, but we actually had the pieces on the ground, and uh, we were able to analyze those pieces. Uh, I've been working on that mission and the results uh, ever since then, and, uh, and we've gotten some very exciting in, uh, results from, uh, from the sun, on the composition of the sun, that have told us some new things about how our solar system was formed. So uh, sometimes things look bad, but uh, we're able to pull them out. Anyway, it was just an, an amazing story. Sure, and I imagine the opposite feeling too when Curiosity landed. Were you were you there that day? And you want to take us through that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, we were uh, the whole landing team and the team of scientists was at JPL, uh, waiting to hear how this landing was going. Uh, it was a big party atmosphere. There were celebrities there. Uh, you know, I personally had a pit in my stomach because of the previous experience I'd had, and it was like, uh, you know, if this thing craters on Mars, we're not going to hear from it again. But uh, fortunately, that landing was just picture perfect. And uh, uh, also the, the landing scheme that NASA had for that rover and now for the Perseverance rover is really harebrained. Uh, it's called a sky crane, and it was a set of retro rockets that hover over the ground and lower the rover by ropes. I think most people know about it by now. But uh, I didn't trust it at the time, but it, it worked absolutely beautifully and uh, got that rover uh, to the ground very smoothly. And we're expecting that it'll work again, of course, on Perseverance, but uh, I'll be biting my, my fingernails again, I'm sure. Sure, and to kind of wrap up, what would you say is your favorite part of your job? What do you love the most about your job? Oh, that's difficult. Uh, I, love, uh, I love creating new, uh, new things that we can use to study the universe, to study the planets. Um, and of course, then the devil gets into the details and how the how these things actually work and what we are uh, constrained to in reality. But uh, coming up with new instruments is always just uh, one of the most exciting times. Uh, and then also, uh, when we get to uh, really uh, uh, key moments like landings, uh, there's nothing like that. And uh, and of course, new discoveries. And I, I just love working also with uh, and inspiring the, the next generation of, of people uh, around the world because uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really important to understand what we can do uh, together and uh, how exciting that can be to explore. You know, we're just made to, uh, we're made with curiosity and we're, we're made to explore this universe. So that's, uh, that's, that's the exciting thing for me. Sure. And I think the more I talk to folks who are developing these technologies, uh, they got the names right with the rovers, with curiosity and, and perseverance. Absolutely. Well, Roger, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Billy. And for more information about the SuperCam, you can go to techbriefs.com slash blog. There you can find a written interview that we did with Roger Weens back in February. In this article, you'll also find images of the SuperCam and links to the research centers responsible for the SuperCam's development. And to listen to more episodes of Here's an Idea, go to techbriefs.com slash podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts or really anywhere you look for your podcasts. So, Roger, thanks again. Thank you.